Today on Government Matters, a push to get the coronavirus vaccines to all veterans fast. The chairman of the House Veterans Affairs Committee on how to speed up distribution. A new stimulus bill signed into law. Look at who's overseeing all of that government spending. And what the relief bill means for federal employees. The sick leave benefits you'll want to know about. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the weekend edition of Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Francis is out this morning. I'm your host, Marjorie Sensor. The House of Representatives just unanimously passed a new measure to expand the reach of the Department of Veterans Affairs in distributing the coronavirus vaccine. The new VA Vaccine Act would allow some caregivers and all veterans, even those who don't receive health care from the VA, to receive vaccines through the VA. Congressman Mark DeCano is chairman of the House Veterans Affairs Committee. Thanks for joining me, Congressman. What spurred this legislation? What made you think that this was an important um, piece to get passed? You know, we were getting uh, accounts of elderly veterans in their 90s, um, the last band of brothers uh, who fought in World War II, who were being turned away from being vaccinated in Florida uh, because they weren't eligible or enrolled in VA. They, it was, the income was too high. Not every, not all Americans understand that uh, not all veterans receive their health care from the VA. Uh, you have to meet an income test or have some sort of uh, service-connected uh, disability or medical condition. Uh, and it was unseemly that we turned away uh, someone in their 90s uh, to get a vaccine. And so we, uh, my, my colleagues and I, we got together on a bipartisan basis uh, to create the Veteran Vaccine Act which would give um, the Secretary of the VA the authority uh, during a national emergency uh, to administer vaccines uh, to veterans, regardless of their eligibility uh, for VA healthcare or whether they're enrolled in some other VA benefit. Do you have an estimate of how many veterans might benefit from this legislation? There are roughly 20 to 21 million veterans, about 9 million of them are actually in enrolled in the VA uh, for healthcare. Uh, so, you know, probably you know, at least in the 10, 11 million veterans uh, would be eligible under this, this uh, legislation. Yeah, a sizable number. And what about the caregiver piece? How would this legislation help them? Well, if their spouses, uh, not spouses, but they have family caregivers, there's really, there's, there's formal programs uh, for caregivers and, um, uh, so there, it makes sense for, you know, people with spinal cord injuries, veterans with spinal cord injuries, for their caregivers uh, to be able to be uh, vaccinated well as well. Uh, that's why uh, the Paralyzed Veterans of America and the Elizabeth Dole Foundation are strong advocates uh, for this legislation, uh, as are a range of veteran service organizations. I really hope the Senate uh, will act uh, quickly on passing this legislation because we really do need the secretary of the VA to have the discretion uh, to extend vaccinations uh, to veterans everywhere. I mean, uh, there's varying degrees of progress, uh, exciting progress being made uh, in different communities where there are VA medical centers. Um, I've heard that in Indiana, uh, they are vaccinating uh, at that VMAC uh, I think in Indianapolis, uh, veterans as young as 18 years old. 
Uh, and that's very exciting. And, and uh, I know my local VA in, in Loma Linda, I think the age was either 60 or 50. I, 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 want, I want to be careful because I don't want to create a rush unnecessarily. <laughs> uh, but um, the VA has been one of the most effective and efficient vaccinators uh, of all of the entities out there vaccinated. I got to give a lot of credit to uh, the uh, Veterans Health Administration. Dr. Stone has just shown tremendous leadership. You mentioned that the Senate needs to take this up next. Do you have any idea of a timeline for that? I don't, um, but I just urge my Senate colleagues to, to act quickly. Um, you know, we believe the language in this bill, uh, you know, gets it right, um, you know, and, and it gives the secretary, uh, you know, uh, authority going forward during national emergencies and, and pandemics. More than that, um, we have a lot of veterans living abroad uh, in countries like the Philippines or in some parts of Europe, uh, you know, who are enrolled in the foreign medical um, program with the VA. And this, this bill would also uh, allow VA to make sure that uh, those veterans have access to vaccine as well. Assuming the Senate, uh, you know, does take it up and it does does get passed and, and signed, um, it seems like there's a little bit of a logistics challenge in terms of getting the word out, making some veterans aware, maybe even ones who've been turned away, that they're now eligible and can do this. How do you hope to uh, approach that? Well, um, I think the uh, the VA has tremendous communications resources. Uh, we can certainly get this message out through the veteran service organizations once. Um, it is enacted into law. Uh, we have uh, state, uh, you know, uh, veteran services across the country um, at the county level. Uh, there's a way for us to mobilize, uh, I think, a very effective uh, communications program to make sure our veterans uh, uh, are notified. And I, I have to say, um, I'm hoping that the, the White House will uh, we'll also get involved and, and send the message out there to our veterans that uh, uh, once this law is passed, uh, that you can go to the VA uh, and, get your vac and, get, and get your vaccine. Now, I just want to give a little caveat here. Um, the, the VA also is in line for its allocations of vaccines. Um, it's, as I said, it's very efficient at getting the vaccination, vaccines into, uh, into veterans' arms and the, the arms of their uh, of their staff, uh, but uh, depending on the supply, um, that's what's going to allow the local uh, medical directors to be able to uh, to, to vaccinate um, uh, this other veteran population in addition to the population that they uh, have primary responsibility to serve. So, uh, but you know, I, I I've been talking to Dr. Stone. I think we're both optimistic. Uh, that by the end of March and the beginning of May, uh, April, uh, that we're going to see, you know, increased supplies. Uh, and um, uh, so I, I feel like uh, the VA is, is in a really great position to be part of this massive effort that was announced by the president last night in his amazing um, uh, uh, speech uh, that, uh, that we're going to be able to uh, vaccinate uh, a lot of Americans, most Americans, maybe by July. Thank you so much, Congressman. Thank you. 
Up next, overseeing the latest coronavirus relief bill. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee is following the money. You're watching ABC7. President Biden just signed the American Rescue Plan Act into law. The Pandemic Response Accountability Committee will oversee implementation of the latest coronavirus relief bill while continuing to try to reduce waste, fraud and abuse in the CARES Act. Michael Horowitz is chair of the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee and inspector general at the Justice Department. Thanks for joining me. Let's start by talking about how you've tracked spending so far. What have you put in place um, for, the, for the previous stimulus bills? So um, when the CARES Act was passed a year ago, which created the PRAC, um, we were uh, obligated to set up within 30 days, and we did a website. I hope the public goes there, pandemicoversight.gov. And it's there to allow the public to see where the money has gone. How's that money been spent? You can track it through um, to um, various degrees, depending upon the nature of the information that has been collected by the government. But it's the one place that people can go with complete data um, about how spending uh, has been undertaken over the past year in the prior bills. Uh, which amount about $3.5 trillion in those multiple bills. It, it certainly sounds like a challenge to, to gather that uh, level of data. Um, what have been sort of the, the pieces that have been more difficult to bring together to provide that transparency? It has certainly been a challenge, and perhaps the biggest challenge has been uh, the, the sufficiency or lack of sufficiency in some instances for, for how agencies have collected recipient reporting information. Um, so one of the things we noted uh, early on were some of the challenges SBA was having in collecting data related to the PPP program. Um, that information has been released over time with more information being made available. Um, but one of the things we did was commission a report that is on our website um, that we issued last November about uh, 16 data gaps that needed to be addressed. And we've been working recently with OMB to try and address those so that information, better information, can be collected by agencies when they issue these monies, when they send this money out, because we all want to both ensure accountability, make sure the money is getting to the right place, but then also try and understand what kind of impact it had. And you can't do that unless you know where the money went and how it was used. Absolutely. Have you made uh, progress in addressing those uh, identified gaps? Um, so we've made progress in the last several weeks in working with OMB to try and figure out how to do that better. Um, and we've undertaken on our own, for example, um, Treasury um, OIG, um, in connection with one of this funding streams, built a recipient reporting tool. Um, and so you can go to our website and see that information. That's the Coronavirus Relief Fund, which was about $150 billion in the CARES Act and is $350 billion in the ARP bill that was signed yesterday by President Biden. Um, and you can see that information down to the zip code level where that money went. And so that's the kind of information we want to make sure we can get to the public. But it's going to require um, working with agencies across the executive branch. And this is where OMB is critical to this effort, to make sure that kind of information is being collected so that we can report it out and the public can know where the money went. Will the committee then be able to use the, the framework, essentially, that you've put in place to track this new um, spending? Um, it will. And one of the things that the bill signed yesterday does is it provides us with the funding we sought 
to also create what we're calling the Pandemic Analytics Center of Excellence, the PACE, so that we can create our own analytics uh, tool that will allow IGs to leverage this data along with other data that's available to us as inspectors general to both inform the public about how the money has been used and whether it's been used well and impact and had an impact, but also to ensure that there's accountability. And we're going to use all the tools we have available to us as IGs, and we have many, uh, the most obvious being the criminal tool that you've seen so many reports about, unfortunately, about uh, criminal cases being brought with our partners at other federal law uh, by other federal law enforcement agencies and working with them like the FBI and others uh, with the U.S. attorneys. But we also have the ability as IGs to work with civil division prosecutors, which we're partnering with, to look at False Claims Act and other ways to recover money, as well as use our suspension and debarment tools. So we're going to do all of those. And the funding we received in the most recent bill will help us build that analytics platform that will help us advance those efforts as well. Just about 15 seconds to go, what do you think the timeline is for that platform? So um, it's going to be iterative. So we're looking to start building it out right away. Um, obviously, some of it uh, will take more time than other parts. For example, we want to start promptly getting uh, data sets available so that IGs can look across agencies and do the kind of cross-cutting work that we're intended to do as IGs. In other words, make sure that what's going on at SBA with PPP loans isn't um, being used in some way improperly through um, other means that we might be able to identify um, if we had, for example, uh, various data in um, other agencies or in other organizations. And so we're looking to do that kind of effort as early as we can while we continue to build a platform with other tools that we uh, might be able to use that are perhaps more sophisticated and require greater effort before we can launch them. Thanks very much for joining me. Absolutely. Great to be here again. Up next, the number one story of the week, straight ahead on Government Matters, the pandemic relief bill and the big changes coming for federal employees. You're watching ABC7. And now for the number one story of the week. The latest pandemic relief bill gives federal employees up to 15 weeks of paid sick leave if they're affected by the virus, need to get a vaccine, or are caring for a child learning virtually. Here to break down the bill and what it means for federal employees, Terry Girton is president and CEO of the National Academy of Public Administration. Angela Stiles is partner at Aiken Gump. She's a member of the Public Buildings Reform Board, and she's former administrator of federal procurement policy. Thank you both for joining me. Terry, let's start with you. What does the pandemic relief bill mean for federal employees in your view? Well, Marjorie, as you just uh, stated, it, it provides a paid family leave for individuals uh, who are both uh, either uh, quarantined or affected by COVID, caring for students, uh, children whose schools might be closed, or caring for someone who uh, can't care for themselves. And the bill specifically also includes that same allocation for the Department of Veterans Affairs and the Department of Transportation Security Agency. So uh, most federal workers are going to be covered by this. It gives them a lot of flexibility, and I think that's a really important feature. How much do you think that matters to federal employees? What, what do you think the benefits of that will be? 
Right, exactly. It's going to, uh, first of all, give them some confidence, right, that they can take the time they need to keep themselves and their families healthy. And that's really important. So that's going to affect uh, employee morale, employee retention, uh, pro uh, pro productivity, as you said. But most importantly, it's going to keep the workforce healthy. Um, and that's a big piece going forward. Sure. A Angela, uh, what jumped out in the bill to you? What do you think are the most important provisions here? Well, I do think the pay is important, but you also have to remember there's a cap of $1,400 per week on, on the paid leave, which is significant to a lot of people. If you're making more than that amount per week, um, you won't be getting that full amount for your paid leave. But from my perspective, the most significant piece of the bill is the impact of the additional programs on federal employees. I have seen such a tremendous impact in terms of stress and additional work. Um, new programs are being put out. There are expectations for federal employees to implement them quickly and accurately without fraud and with the same workforce that they already have. And I will tell you that it is a very difficult job with so many of them still working from home as well. Um, the ones I've seen, the ones I've worked with on shuttered venues, and then there's a new Restaurant Act grant. And these are billions and billions of dollars. Even the Paycheck Protection Program put an incredible strain on the federal workforce. And I think we all have to be, recognize that and, and work with them and recognize all the strains that they are under right now. It, it sounds like you think that um, it's a pretty heavy lift without additional resources. Is there anything that um, you think can be done to, to assist here? Oh, absolutely. I, I think um, I'll give you an example. So the Shuttered Venues Grant, $15 billion for stages and live venue operators that are really hurting right now. Uh, the first $15 billion came out in um, December in that stimulus package, but it didn't include any money for the SBA to implement it, to put in an IT infrastructure to um, accept applications. And so actually the new stimulus bill just added additional funds um, for them to be able to bring on contractors, for them to be able to bring on additional federal employees, for them to actually have some IT that's functional. And you saw the same thing. So there's $25 billion for restaurants in the new stimulus bill. Um, and it also has money for implementation of that program. And so at least everybody's learning that there's a lot of stress on our federal agencies and our federal employees, and they need additional resources. And Angela, this isn't the first stimulus package. Uh, do you think there are some lessons learned or some um, kind of positives that maybe have come out of, of previous versions in terms of learning about the implementation? I think there's some positive and negative lessons learned. I mean, I think what you'll see is some of the fraud that came along with the Paycheck Protection Program is making the federal government much more cautious, both paycheck protection as well as these additional um, grant and stimulus funds to make sure that they're appropriately spent and that they aren't, you know, taken by surprise that, um, you know, somebody that's com committing fraud or misrepresenting themselves is receiving this money. And, and I think that's good. I mean, this is a lot of money and we want to make sure it's spent correctly for the people that really need it. And, and Terry, going back to you for a second on uh, on leave and, and the way federal workers are going to react to this, do you think there might be any hesitation about taking this, about not being sure that this is, um, you know, truly okay? Well, I think uh, Angela's point about implementing the new programs in the bill is an important one here, right? The agencies are going to need to put out guidance to their workforce and be clear about what the parameters are and how they apply for them. But I think they should have confidence, federal workers should have confidence that this these provisions are going to be available to them, 
that it's not going to affect their uh, their retention or their job performance. Um, but the agencies will need to put out clear guidance, and I think that's true um, both on the leave side of the program and the programs that are being administered. What do you think is the key to that guidance? What would you like to see, you think, that will make this um, be implemented well? Uh, uh, the, the guidance is going to need to be really clear. It's going to uh, need to tell folks how to apply for it, how to document it, how to uh, be clear on uh, the provisions and how to inform their, their supervisors. So they're going to need to be uh, putting out all of those kinds of rules, but it's not unlike any other kind of leave program um, that, that the government's used to. We just need to, to put out the clear guidance and communicate it clearly to the workforce. Angela, with just about 30 seconds left, I want to ask you also, what will you be watching uh, going forward in terms of looking at how these, this will be implemented? I, I think the long-term impact on the federal workforce, you can't both ask them to get this done quickly with no additional resources and, and make sure it's done perfectly. And so I do worry about the long-term retention of many of our excellent career federal employees because, you know, they've stuck it out through a lot in the past year. And my question is, you know, how much longer can they actually keep performing at this level and want to stay in the jobs that they have? Thank you both for joining me. Thank you. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. For a preview of each newscast, sign up for our daily program guide right now by texting GOVMATTERS to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join us weeknights, 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and next Sunday morning at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Marjorie Sensor. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.